Let's go. You are listening to Dollars and Sensibility, the podcast that explores the numbers, concepts, and behaviors that shape your financial life. Hosts, business partners, and friends, Bill McBride and Andrew Martz are financial advisors in Hollywood, California, that for a combined 35 years have helped thousands of individuals and businesses better their financial futures. Here, they want to open these discussions to you, the listener, share the many things they have learned, and of course, how to be sensible about your dollars. Welcome back. This is another From the Feed episode with Dollars and Sensibilities. Bill, these are quickly becoming, I think, my favorite episodes. I like them. I like them. Yeah. Keep. It's December. Uh, we're in the holiday spirit. And today is going to be a fun one. Let's jump right in. First one is coming from Barron's. This is another Elon Musk and Tesla story. Title of the article, Elon Musk isn't done selling Tesla stock. Here's how much he just sold. So backdrop on this story. Elon has received a significant amount of shares as a part of his compensation package dating back as early as 20, you know, 11, 2012. And some of those options were set to expire in 2022, which means he's got to do something with them if he's going to be able to actually realize this. So it's forced him to now exercise shares, which again, the option just gives him the right to purchase shares. He's purchasing some of these things that like, Five and six dollars a share, I think it's right. Said. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, the the easy question to ask here, Andrew, and I, I, I think I know the answer. The easy question to ask is, is this a hoax? Right? Is, is he tweeting his followers back in early November? Hey, should I should I sell stock and pay taxes on unrealized capital gains? Coinciding with uh, the uh, infrastructure bill and everybody saying, hey, millionaires have to pay taxes, the wealth tax, the billionaire tax, like we talked about and from the feed a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, are they, is everybody going to go, yeah, well, you should sell, you should. He has to. He, he has right. to, right? If, if you've got options that are going to expire and you can buy Tesla stock trading at whatever, 980, and you can buy it for five bucks a share, you have to exercise those options and then you have to pay the taxes on them. What is, what is the significance or what is the rationale for asking Twitter followers if that's what he should do? That's a great point. I think Elon Musk is the ultimate showman, right? Yep. Like he, there is just this flamboyance and flair about him that he, it, to your point, he's got to exercise them or he's just going to give up like billions of dollars and <laughs> shares of his own company. It's a dog and pony like show, man. It, it reminds me, it reminds me of the cinematic classic Joe Dirt when he asks if, if the crowd wants to see him put his head in the alligator's mouth. Of course, but he's going to do it anyway, right? He just purchased 13 million shares. Okay, so let, let's do some quick math on what 13 million shares translates to as far as its its current stock price. Currently trading at what? About 960, 970, give or let's take. Let's say 1,000. Make it easy, right? Yep. 13 billion bucks. So there's $13 billion. Uh, of that, he's had to sell, what did they say? Something to the tune of like two, 2 million shares just, just to pay the taxes on the, the capital gains from, from those shares that he exercised. So you're talking about like well over a billion dollars in taxes that this guy is paying. No, it was, I think it was about five, 
5.6 million of the shares to pay the taxes, right? So there's there's a, a nuance here for for a person like Elon where these unrealized gains uh, are added to his ordinary income as an owner of the company. So I, I think that's why he had to exercise. Like normally somebody would be in the whatever, 38% federal tax bracket uh, for income. And, you know, he just moved to Texas, right? So I, I think his state taxes, I don't know where it's domiciled, but long story short, he's not getting away with 20% in, in capital gains. He's going to have to pay a, a lot more. But, you know, uh, nobody's feeling bad for Elon today, right? Because you, you figure his cost basis on these shares is going to be about $700 million on a 13, no, $700,000 on 13, wait, $700 million on $13 billion, right? So, right. boo-hoo, right? That's a $12.3 billion gain. Not bad, not bad, Elon. Good day in the market for you, sir. All right, let's get to the... Uh, Forget the 4% rule, why retirees need to think their withdrawal strategies. So this is a, a Barron's article. I think we touched on this a few weeks ago as well. And it's this rule of thumb that uh, helps make an abstract and complicated process easier. The 4% rule was never meant to be a one-size-fits-all solution, but with so many people trying to turn their life savings into a paycheck in retirement, the rule has become entrenched in our terminology. Um, and... Not surprisingly, the limitations are, are very misunderstood. So, Andrew, we talked about the 4% rule. We actually had a whole episode on that, but it was the 5% rule, you know, 30 years ago, and then it became the 4% yeah. rule. And the rule is simply, hey, how much can you take from your life savings when you retire and not run out of money? That's the, you know, the abstract, just vague explanation of it. Um the devil's in the details, though. So what, what they're saying here in this Barron's article is that they're changing that 4% rule to 3.3%. And there's a lot of reasons for that. So, so here's why I love this, this topic. The 4% rule, as you alluded to, is a rule of thumb. So nobody's financial plan should be made strictly on a rule of thumb. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you cannot because every single situation is going to be unique and independent. Now, what the 4% rule assumes is like this nice, happy, consistent trail through your retirement years. So if anybody has ever lived life, <laughs> life is not an easy, consistent, happy trail of anything because you're going to get thrown curveballs. And to assume that you're not going to have some years in retirement where things happen that can impact your costs, right? The expenses that you're paying, things of that nature. I think it's probably an unrealistic and probably an irresponsible way to, to go through, through your retirement. Now, this has become such a highly debated topic because the 4% rule assumes these, what we'd call quote unquote, traditional portfolios. Well, traditional portfolios today are not the most effective or efficient things, meaning 60, 40 stocks and bonds, set it and forget it, just pick the S&P and the Barclays aggregate. There's a lot of problems with that because now the financial markets have become so complex and what once was non-correlating assets, non-correlating investments now move together or are much more closely related. And there are a lot of other investment vehicles that are being used that are not 
used in these calculations and or assumptions. Yeah. And go yeah, ahead. And I, I just, I want to go back because what I, I think what you said in the beginning, Andrew, was so important to this because we can go through this conversation for another half an hour about, you know, the diversification and how there's so many more products available now, whereas there wasn't before when the 4% or the 5% rule was invented. But the important part here is that what you said about financial planning should not include a rule of thumb. And exactly. I feel that rules of thumb, the rule of 72, the 4% rule, all of these things for me serve only when I'm sitting around on the sofa in in between watching uh, my favorite show and going and, and have that creeping worry about my retirement and I'm not going to sit down and do the actual work and financial plan. And I just want to feel like I'm okay. Right. Or I just want to feel like I'm, I'm vaguely, vaguely on track because what you're doing by using a rule of thumb is addressing that vague feeling of being on track. Mm -hmm. But until you get into the deep dive of financial planning and get into the details, you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot. If that's all you do is use the rule of thumb. That's right. And, and the reason I wanted to talk about this topic again, and we have talked, we, we've dedicated entire episodes to it. And I know that we'll talk about it some more is because there are some very nuanced strategies that don't get talked about enough that should be considered. One, and they mentioned this in the article, is just creating a flexible retirement income strategy, meaning making sure that you have enough resources and your lifestyle is flexible enough that you can adjust your withdrawal rates from portfolio from your portfolio, depending on what is going to be reasonable for that year. The largest risk that exists for retirees happens in just the first couple of years of retirement, meaning let's assume that you retire at 65. From 65 to 70 is where your portfolio is at the most risk for adverse market conditions, much less so than when you're 80 to 85 because your, your time horizon and longevity is now much shorter, theoretically. Well, indefinitely, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the flexibility, and there's a number of different ways to, to slice and dice this, uh, but the point I want to drive home is, as you're adopting plans, be sure to build and have those conversations with your financial planning team about, hey, how could we adjust for a 25% pullback in the markets? How could we adjust for if there's larger expenses? Where are these things going to come from? Which may force you to adapt other parts of your plan, like your risk management plan, your long-term care plan, and there's other elements that go beyond your stock and bond portfolio that can help mitigate these risks. I, I like that too, Andrew, because I've had this year a record number of clients retiring. And the overarching theme in, in their concern for retirement isn't, hey, am I going to run out of money? You know, th they've got a plan in place, but it's that, that, that vicious change from I'm getting a paycheck that is directly correlated to the work I've put in to now I, I'm not earning anything else. And the income won't vary. And when you use something like the 4% rule, you're, you're saying you're not taking into account those good years in the market and you're not taking into account those bad years in the market. So I like in the article uh, what that financial planner, Jonathan Goyton, did uh, in terms of, hey, we have a good year. You're going to get an extra, you know, if you made 20% in the market, 
this year and you're only taking 4%, well, we're going to we're going to give you an extra f- a raise this year. And then if the market pulls back, maybe next year's a little thinner. I think that can help people enjoy their retirement a lot more. Well, but what's interesting about what what he did in that strategy was if the market did 20% better, he didn't just give that 20% to to the client. Right. Right. There, there was an increase in, in the distribution and the amount of income that somebody would receive in that year, but it still left appreciated gains inside of their portfolio that would theoretically allow them to produce more income in the future. So it, it's almost like, you know, you're, you're still saving and paying yourself first, even in retirement as your market, uh, as your portfolio is increasing with, with good market. Absolutely. This next article may be one of my favorites because this is happening all, all over the world. So uh, this comes from the BBC and uh, titled the article, football fans spending millions on club crypto tokens. So for you Americans, this is football or soccer, uh, <laughs> not American football. Uh, but this, this trend is being seen in sports leagues and businesses all over the world. So what's happening? Uh, in the European soccer leagues, 24 different clubs have now launched or are considering launching fan tokens. So whether this is in the form of non-fungible tokens, NFTs, or crypto-specific coins for the clubs, uh, I'm not sure. The article did not delineate. But this idea of cryptographic assets being issued by organizations like sports teams or businesses is becoming very, very popular. What do we make of this? Uh, I, I want your take, and then I'll give you. Yeah, my. I mean, this was this was when you when you show me the article, Andrew. I was like, well, this is new to me, right? And it just reeks of it's almost like it's almost a Ponzi scheme. I mean, it it, it just it's manipulation. I don't like it, I, and I I think you're going to get a lot of uh, you know I don't know what the what they call the good ones, the hooligans and the and the club fans, you're a fan of Man United and they come out with this token, you're going to buy it, right? And you're going to buy it because then you have a vote to what walk-on music the team's going to have and and, and all that. But as the article was saying, there's kind of two people. The club is making the case that, oh, it's only going to be fans that buy it so that they can have votes and what color jerseys the players are going to wear what week or whatever. But the reality is people are buying it just like they're buying crypto because they want to get rich. And again, this has no fundamentals. Who's making money on this? A precious few. And there's going to be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that buy into this thinking that they have an opportunity to make money on this crypto token for their favorite uh, club league. It's, It's just blatant manipulation. I don't, I don't, I don't see how it does any good for the population. So I set you up. I really figured that was going to be your take. <laughs> of course. And I set you, you know up on, on purpose. Tell me. While I don't disagree, there, there's a lot of speculation happening in this marketplace. There are a lot of people who are buying these tokens, uh, as the, the article alluded, to try to just benefit from an increase in, in the price of the right. token. It also mentioned that the value of most of these fan tokens have decreased since they were initially sold by the actual clubs. But if you take this into context of what this means for Web 3.0 and the direction that consumers and businesses 
are interacting inside of a, an economy and inside of, let's just call it an ecosystem. Th these are very clear representations of how we are going to trade and barter in this new wave of economy. I don't know if this is going to happen next year, five years, 10 years, but you've seen increased popularity. So to your point, people are a part of this community and they want to vote on things like the color of jerseys and they want to vote on things on the, the walkout music and, you know, do we do fireworks or, you know, flamethrowers after, after a goal is scored. But I think about, for example, in the NFL. So if you are a season ticket holder of any franchise, there's a buy-in cost to be able to hold that spot, right? The PSA or whatever that club calls it to out for your five seats or two seats allocated within, you know, the stadium. Those for very popular teams can be tens of thousands of dollars and depending on the seats, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So that's just like the buy-in cost. And then you have to buy the tickets from, you know, from the club. Right. Now those comes at, at cost. Some people use those tickets. Some people resell those, but let's say my family has been New York giants season ticket holders for 40 years and I want to sell the rights to my seat. I can, I can do that. Well, what will happen is all of those types of things will now be done in my opinion, in the future through blockchain technology. That'll all switch over to cryptographic assets. But imagine that that entitled you to more than just the seats themselves. Like things, what color are the jerseys going to be? What's the, the music playlist going to sound like? What food do we serve at the at the stadiums and, and different things like that? Also, hey, maybe you get invited to private events and you get exclusive access and there's a, you know, a players meetup that you get to now be a part of because you are an owner of that token. So there, there's a, um, a financial services company, a tax business that's doing something very similar. They're selling NFTs and tokens. And what that entitles owners of those tokens to, discounts on their services, invitations to exclusive events as a part of this community, and other sorts of benefits uh, that go along with being a, an owner of this private club. And the ability to track who is authentic or not is all done via blockchain technology. So it reduces the ability for corruption, uh, manipulation, and, and all these other things. So, so I think that as we move into an era where you see more and more businesses are built around this community aspect, right? We, we live in this um, kind of rideshare community ecosystem with all of the largest businesses in the world it's only natural that now you have a technology that enables you to to use to create more community aspects that this is going to be the future. You're going to have your people who who don't understand it and just think like, oh, this is going to be the next Bitcoin because it's man united and they they're not going to make any money. But I think there's a lot of people who will continue to understand where the direction of, you know, finance, culture uh, sports, entertainment, all of this is moving and, and you're going to be able to trade inside of the system through the metaverse or something. Exactly. <laughs> like it's, it's all connected to I, me. I get your point, Andrew. And, and what we're dealing with though, with your point though, is some unknown point in the future where it all kind of makes sense. For now, I say join the fan club. 
You get to vote. You know, have your fan club. This is simply causing an unnecessary step in the monetary transaction for fans to interact with their teams. And it's also manipulating people into thinking that instead of joining the fan club and voting on the walkout song, you buy a token, it's got monetary value that just went down, but hey, maybe sometime in the future you'll make a million dollars because you put 50 bucks into a Man United token. I don't I don't buy it. All right. So loosely moving from foot moving from football to football. Fo- football to f- football. 49ers plan to buy Leeds United for $530 million. All right. So the San Francisco 49ers Enterprises originally purchased a 10% equity stake in the club worth a reported $13.6 million in 2018 from the majority stakeholder Leeds chairman Andrea Razzani. Sounds very European. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and what do you make of this? American, American football team buying a... Uh, English football team. Well, to me, it speaks to the interconnectivity of the world right now, right? Sports and entertainment are some of the most binding factors in in culture, right? We all root for the same team. We wear the jerseys of the same players. We go bananas for our team. And now that we live in this like very connected world, sports that used to be geographically bound, things like Premier League soccer, uh, another good example would be F1 uh, racing, that were traditionally what you would call across the pond, have gained tremendous popularity in the United States as we can tune in, watch these, stream them, get them on our phone, and now learn and become fans of these these different sports teams and or franchises. So the 49ers Enterprises, which owns the San Francisco 49ers, bought a 10% stake valued at 13.6. So it was, it was valued, the, the club was valued at 136 million, give or take, uh, just three years ago. N- now what has happened, they're back into the Premier League, which is like the Premier League, <laughs> has the name with the note. Uh, its value has increased up to over a half a billion dollars. Obviously, that investment by the 49ers was very, very lucrative for them over the last three years. And you're looking at the democratization of sports. And what it's, what it's translating to is incredible, incredible valuations on some of these sports teams and sports leagues. It, it really is, Andrew. And, and, you know, I know we deal with some, some higher level transactions and, but the ones like these really boggle my mind and specifically just the numbers. Roger Zani bought the club in 2014 for 52 million. Roger Zani maintains a 56 ownership stake. Now he's given up that ownership stake, presumably to sell to the San Francisco 49ers. And at the end of the article, it says Roger Zani wants leads to be worth 1.15 billion within the next five years. I don't understand why, why do you give up your 56% stake or any share of that when your $52 million investment is going to turn into 1.15 billion? Well, there's, there's probably capital that's needed, you know, resources. I, I don't know the the logistics of what 49, the 49ers Enterprises is bringing to the deal. What I do know is that anytime a business is bought from an individual to a larger enterprise, it's generally for money, intellectual capital, 
network and resources. So the, these things are probably what are going to translate into the billion dollar plus valuation. You got nine guys, give them the same shirt, put them on the field. How much is a soccer ball? Come on. <laughs> anyway, next. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to planet Earth. Let's talk about everybody's favorite 2021 topic. Inflation. So this is coming from Time Magazine, time.com. Inflation hits a 39-year high in November. Here's what costs more and how to plan for it. So first of all, I think it's important for a lot of listeners to just recognize that inflation is not just one number that can simply be reported 2%, 5%, 7%, and that that means, hey, this is how it's going to impact me. The, the consumer price in, index is an aggregate of all different elements of the, the economy. Weighted. Weighted, correct. And what's important is to recognize what does your micro economy look like? Because it may look much different than what's happening in the rest of the world or what may impact or affect your, your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your family, so on and so forth. So in November, the Consumer Price Index, which measures changes in food and housing and gasoline, rose 6.8% over the past 12 months. Now, for anybody new to inflation, this is a very high number, specifically in more recent history. So if we go back 80 years, you know, we'd probably say inflation averages around three, maybe three and a quarter. In the last, you know, more recent history, so the last 10, 15, 20 years, it's been much less. It's been less than three. Two and um, a half. You know, two, yeah, two, two and a half. Yeah. So this is the, the largest reported inflation surge in the last 40 years, which is why everybody is up, up in arms about it. But inflation is not distributed equally. Correct, right? And this this is go this goes back to our single digit episodes, uh, lies, damn lies, and statistics, where you know, the <laughs> yeah. consumer price index it, it really, you know, in the seventies it used to be a gallon of milk, uh, a gallon of gas, a loaf of bread, and what they started doing when technology took a turn uh, in the eighties and nineties, CD players they started putting TVs in there. And that's when it started to really get manipulative, meaning that if a TV entered the consumer price index, well, that's not something a consumer buys every year or every week, certainly right. not every week. Also, TVs, they put it in there to keep that consumer price index number down and keep people happy because a TV that was a thousand bucks this year was probably 800 next year. So fast forward to today, we got gasoline alone up 58.1%, energy prices up 33%, used vehicles up 31, new vehicles up 11, food prices up six, and meat, poultry, fish, and eggs collectively are up 12.8. What do we see here? Well, Andrew, if you're not buying a new car and you don't do a lot of driving, right, you have to deal with the food prices, right? And, and, and that's, mm -hmm. that is, that's indicative of increased demand from coming out of COVID, uh, any way yep. you slice it, whether it's the, the, the gasoline part or the food part. But what I will say, though, is we, we hear all this in the news about inflation. I contest that the economy is doing just fine. Certainly, inflation is always going to be a concern. 
But if we look at jobs reports, if we look at housing, new builds, if we look at all those things that are indicative of a booming economy that we've been experiencing for the past 14 years, 13 years, it, we're still doing okay. Certainly the gas prices, you know, that's the one that everybody's the, concerned about. But to that, I say 4% of the consumer price index is in gas. So if gas is up 58%, well, if you were spending 4% of your income on gas, if you're making $50,000 a year and you spent $2,000 a year on gas, and now you're spending $3,000 a year, that's, you know, I get it. That's significant. It's something of- That's significant. That's significant. It is. It's something of concern. Um, but in other areas, I, I, I think you can, you can pivot- and and use other areas to be worried about uh, as opposed to just these simple it's it's really gas and energy right because right and, and so like lodging so rental cars hotels and things like that are up 20 percent or so in the last year so if you're if you're feeling it more on the gas pump what happens practically inside somebody's budget is they're probably not going to take that extra vacation or maybe even that that kind of normal summer family vacation right. which you, now you're not experiencing high inflation rates in some of those areas now practically what does that mean well it probably just kind of stinks right that's a bummer if you don't get to take your family vacation because gas prices are up but that's how that translates to reality into into somebody's budget the interesting thing about inflation maybe not the interesting the most important thing that i would want to get across is while you're looking at food prices going up, energy prices going up, travel and lodging, home prices uh, increasing. The solution to that is saving and investing your money. And certainly what won't help that is putting money into your bank accounts that are still yielding you 0.02% if that may be. So while yes, inflation is is an issue, and yes, we have had a great run in 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 the markets over the last 10 plus years, I think inflation concerns is a call to action to get a financial plan together and make sure that you're saving and investing an appropriate amount of assets, which just doesn't mean, you know, stocks and bonds. You can invest in a number of different ways, but investing helps mitigate the impact of inflation. 100%. It's very, very important for people to know. 100%, Andrew. And I'm glad you went there because that is the bridge to the, the final point I wanted to make about gasoline and what I personally did was I saw myself spending $100, $150 more per month. I drive a lot to get to the office and yep. wherever. I invested $10,000 in DBO, some oil ETF, right? That doubled, right? Even if it had only gone up 50%, that more than makes up for the difference. So it, it's it's a perfect combination. That's the to me, that's the answer for the listener of what you were saying about, hey, you know what? You want to save more uh, if you're if you're spending more in other areas. And I say, psychologically, you can do something specifically. If you if you feel that you want a new car, Ford stock just went up 100%, right? So maybe buy that car next year and put the $5,000 you saved into Ford stock and guess what? It goes up. It's not going to go up 100% again. Maybe it will. But if it goes up 20% next year, you just made up for the inflationary pressure. 
disclaimer, this is not a recommendation to buy Ford stock nor nor DBO. An assessment of where do we think Ford is going to go in the next year. Hey, let's finish on kind of a fun note. Uh, This strikes really close to home for me. Peloton strikes back at Sex in the City reboot with a new ad. So for those of you who are lost on the entertainment and celebrity news updates, Sex in the City is back. There's a reboot. Shocker, they've gotten a little bit older. What happens in the the new premiere episode, uh, one of the characters dies. Spoiler, <laughs> you guys are supposed to do spoiler alert before you tell everybody. <laughs> Am I supposed, oh. I guess I'm, yeah, I'm assuming you've already seen it. Spoiler alert. One of the characters dies on a on a Peloton, you know, Peloton bike while doing, doing a workout, which sent shockwaves. Why are we bringing this up on a financial podcast? Sent shockwaves into the marketplace. <laughs> now, Peloton has been a bellwether stock. It was a, a very, very popular stay-at-home stock, right? So people are all forced to stay at home in 2020. Um, we're traveling less. We're building all these home gyms, blah, blah, blah. So this company is selling bikes like you know, like, like candy. They've since now had a little bit of pricing pressure. They've come down significantly from their all time highs as things start to reopen and the economy starts to reopen. Dude, and they, then you they get got it. Hit I'm with, sorry. They got it handed to them last Christmas, oh, last Christmas, one sixty, sitting at $37 a share. Now, I mean, Pelot- Peloton has just gotten crushed in the last year. Creamed, yeah. just creamed. So, Here's why I wanted to talk about this event in this article. You, you had this, this kind of cultural shock, right? And people are talking about it. This is in the Wall Street Journal. It was probably on TMZ and everything in between. And in kind of a snapback fashion, Peloton comes out with this ad with the actor who plays the character who died, um, and Ryan Reynolds narrating in this like very entertaining and funny ad of him like, alive and they're promoting how Peloton actually benefits cardiovascular health and all the the great health benefits that that come from this. I I love it. So my question to you is, was this all planned from the beginning? Great question. Well, first of all, as just a publicity and media stunt, because you have a stock that's gone from 160 down into the mid thirties, it's struggling. I don't, you know, their sales are probably down lower, especially year over year as far as growth. So are you trying to create a little bit of media buzz, which by the way, disclaimer, they are reporting that they had nothing to do with this. They had no idea of what the storyline was going to be and that they didn't provide the bike to the show, the show procured the bike themselves. Um, so they, Peloton says, at least their official statement, we had no idea that this is what was going to happen. I'm not buying that. HBO, <laughs> neither. HBO is way <laughs> smarter than that, right? HBO is not going to put a product in one of their shows without contacting the, the manufacturer, right? Or the PR department and all that. And they had a no, right? Um, how much did uh, was it, Mr. Big? What's the car- What's the the guy's name? I don't know. Mr. Mr. Big, Mr. yeah, Sarah Jessica Parker's Parker's uh, husband in the okay. show. Okay, so how much did he get paid for it? Uh, for you know, for the show, never mind uh, the the Peloton ad that followed. And was it a cause effect thing? I don't know, but it's it to me, it just reeks of what are we really paying attention to when it comes to a stock price, right? Yes. Like, do, were you sitting there watching Sex in the City going, oh man, P- 
Pelotons must be really hard for your cardiovascular health because that guy just died on it. And he's a real, come on. Like, yeah, I don't know. So, so after all of this happened and after the snapback ad that Peloton came out with, the stock rose 7.4% on that Monday uh, on opening trading. So to answer your question, what are we paying attention to? Well, clearly we're paying attention to this. I found this article in the Wall Street Journal. It's moving stock prices to the tune of seven and a half percent in a trading session. Now, is it all directly correlated to that? I don't know, but the the timing sure is coincidental. I think Ryan Reynolds' voice is just gold, and that's why I'm buying Ryan, whatever I'm buying whatever he's selling. Yeah, it, he really his comedic timing matched uh. with like the tonality of how he delivers. Fantastic. Ryan, if you ever want to be on the podcast, you have an open invitation, buddy. Hey, nice. this has been another episode <laughs> of From the Feed with Dollars and Sensibilities. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Please like, subscribe, share it with a friend, family member, coworker. If you find some value in this, it helps us spread the message. Uh, until next time, I'm Andrew Martz. And Bill McBride. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Dollars and Sensibility podcast. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you can join us for each and every episode. Follow us on social media at WIS Advisors and be sure to check out our website at wisadvisors.com. Tune in for the next step on the bridge between dollars and the mind of the sensible investor. Thanks for listening. Bill McBride and Andrew Martz are investment advisor representatives and registered representatives with Western International Securities Incorporated. All the opinions expressed by Andrew, Bill, and all podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Western International Securities. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Western International Securities may maintain positions discussed in this podcast.